you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open them to the first book of the Bible. This morning, we are back to the beginning. We're back in Genesis this morning after a three-year break. In those ensuing three years, we studied Paul's letter to the Romans and concluded that just this past Sunday. When we were in Genesis three years ago, back in the first half of 2016, uh, we only made it to chapter 11, all the way through chapter 11. And that wasn't by accident, that was on purpose. Um, It was by design because the beginning of chapter 12 marks a whole new section in the book of Genesis with the patriarchs, beginning with Abraham in chapter 12 and then Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and so on from there. So there are some wonderfully important stories for us to cover in the next few months as we make our way through this new section of Genesis. And it's my aim, uh, Lord willing, to just go straight through from chapter 12 to chapter 50. So beginning next week, we will start in chapter 12 and resume our verse-by-verse exposition of God's Word. But because it's been three years since we've been in this book, and because we have a lot of folks who are with us now who weren't with us three years ago when we covered the first 11 chapters, I thought it would be helpful for us to do a bit of a review this morning on where we are in this letter. So it's my hope and prayer that this morning would serve a bigger purpose than just giving us a foundation for what is coming next in the book. But I think it's desperately important that we do get that foundation because there are some things that are going to happen, some stories that we're going to encounter in chapters 12 through 50 that we're not going to fully understand or appreciate if we don't get that foundation. And so while last week we did a recap of the book of Romans, this morning we're going to do an overview of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So we need to start Uh, Much in the same way that we started at the very beginning of that study uh, over three years ago, and that is going back to the setting in which this book was written. In order to do that, we need to go back some 3,500 years, and we find ourselves in the Sinai wilderness. There, in the Sinai wilderness, a nation finds themselves wandering in the desert. They had been rescued out of the grip of of the most powerful nation and empire of that time, the Egyptian empire. For 400 years, the Egyptian pharaohs had held Israel in bondage as slaves, doing their dirty work, building their empire and their nation and their pyramids and so forth. But the Israelite God, Yahweh, at this point, had delivered them out of that slavery, out of that bondage, And he did so by using a man named Moses. Moses was born as a Hebrew slave, but by God's divine providence, he was raised as an Egyptian prince. But then later, exiled by God into the wilderness as a lowly shepherd. And then, again, by God's providence, some 40 years later, God called him to be his mouthpiece, his his prophet to lead the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, bursting the bonds of Egyptian captivity. 
Now, at this point, as they're in the wilderness, this delivered nation is on the other side of the Red Sea, having been delivered by God, and wandering now in a desert expanse, they find themselves encountering strange people in a strange land, foreign nations with foreign gods, surrounded by much stronger nations themselves, seemingly at least much stronger than the seemingly weak nomadic tribes that comprise the nation of Israel. And it's during this time, somewhere between Mount Sinai, where they received the Ten Commandments, and Mount Nebo, where Moses would later die, somewhere in between there, before they entered into the Promised Land, somewhere in there, this book is written, the book of Genesis. The purpose of this book was both to inform and to encourage the chosen people Israel, the nation of Israel. These people who are wandering in a strange land, in a a place that is not their own, looking for what is their promised land. And really, that is a good picture of the church today. That we are a strange people in a strange land that is not our own, looking for, longing for what is our promised land. And so the book of Genesis, for us as well, is meant to inform us and also to encourage us. This was a people who were struggling to find themselves and to find their home. They were a nomadic people who needed to know who they were, who their God was, and where they belonged. And that's what Genesis serves for them. The the book itself doesn't attest to Moses' authorship, but biblical scholarship is nearly unanimous that he is the author of this book. And Jesus settles it for us in the Gospels as he attests that Moses wrote the first five books, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And so that should settle it for us as well. The title of this book is Genesis, but that's actually a Greek word that means origins. But it wasn't written in the Greek language, it was written in the Hebrew language, the language of the Israelites. And the Hebrew name for this book is Reshith, which is simply just the first word that we find in the Bible, the first word of this book, which is in the beginning, which is what Reshith means. So that's how the book begins, in the beginning, because it's a book of beginnings. It's a book of origins. In this book, we find the beginning of a lot of things, the beginning of creation, the beginning of time, the beginning of man, the beginning of sin, and as we'll see, the beginning of the gospel. The first 11 chapters that we want to cover this morning can be divided into four books, So the outline of the first four chapters would look like this. If we were to divide them into books, you would first have the book of creation, which is the first three chapters of the book. Then you would have the book of Adam, really his sons, Abel, uh, Cain, Abel, and Seth. And then after that, you have the book of Noah, which is the largest section of the first 11 chapters, followed by the book of nations, covering the table of nations and the tower of Babel and the dispersion of peoples. But in those four sections, those four books, 
there is a cord of three strands that is woven all throughout them, and, and really all throughout the Old Testament. But this morning, I want us to see this cord of three strands. We don't, we don't have time to go into any detail whatsoever about all the things that happened in the first 11 chapters. But what I want us to do is I want to see this cord of three strands. The three strands in this cord are the sin of man, the judgment of God for that sin, and a hint and a foreshadowing of God's mercy in the midst of that judgment. Man's sin, God's judgment, and God's mercy. And this three-stranded cord is the cord of God's redemptive plan in history. And it all points to Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary, wherein our redemption is made true. It is made possible. And so this morning, I want us to, I want to, want us to trace that three-strand cord as we see it in the first 11 chapters in each of these books. So let's first look at the first book, the book of creation, the first three chapters. It starts with, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. So before there was anything, before there was time, there was God. So in the beginning, God. And so we learn right away that God is eternal, Before there was anything, before there was earth, before there was space, before there was a universe, before there was even time, before there was anything, God was. He existed before time began. He is timeless. He is eternal. He is not bound by time. But then we learn that this God is creator. Not only is he eternal, but he is a creating God. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he created out of his own desire to reveal himself and display his glory. And it's just mind-boggling to consider this God who existed before time began that he creates. So God existed before anything else. There, There was nothing else except God. He just was, and there was nothing else. And so what did he use to create? Nothing. He used nothing to create. In Latin, it's called ex nihilo. Out of nothing, he creates everything. And he creates by speaking. The the phrase, and God said, is repeated on each of the six days of creation. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And it was so. And God said, let the waters be gathered together. And God said, let the, let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God said, let the waters swarm with living creatures. And let the earth sprout forth vegetation. And it was so. The fact that God creates by speaking is one of the themes that we see throughout the book of Genesis. And that is that when God speaks, he speaks authoritatively. When God says Let the waters be gathered together. What did the waters do? They gathered together. So when God speaks, he speaks authoritatively. And so God's word, his logos, is authoritative. And we see this in Genesis personified in the person of Moses. Moses, above all else, was a prophet. He was God's mouthpiece. 
And so he spoke God's word to the Israelites, but he also speaks God's word to us as he writes this letter. And so this letter, this, this book, Genesis, is authoritative to us as well. Another phrase that we see repeated throughout the creation story is that God saw that it was good. And so all that God creates is good, including the climax of his creation, which is mankind. But then what does mankind do? He rebels against God. He sins against God. So there we see our first strand of this three-stranded cord, the sin of man, the fall of man in the garden in chapter 3. The serpent tempts Adam and Eve and Desiring to be like God, they take of that forbidden fruit and they eat of it, violating the one command that God had given them to not do so. And as a result of that sin, what does God do? He judges them. So that's our second strand of this three-stranded cord. And we see the judgment of God in his cursing of mankind. He, he curses the woman. I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. He says, your desire will now be for your husband, and that will not be a good desire. It will be a desire to rule over him and to to assume his role in the home as spiritual leader. But he will rule over you. And so there's cursing on the woman, then there's cursing on the man, the judgment of man. He says to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain now you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. In other words, Adam, now life is going to be hard. Now work is going to be a toil. There was work before the fall, but now after the fall, work is hard, work is difficult, and work is painful and filled with suffering. Thorns and thistles, he says, will now be a part of life in a fallen world. Towards the end of chapter 3, he also, we also see the judgment of God when he expels mankind out of, out of the garden, reminding us that sinners cannot be in the presence of a holy God. He expels them out of the garden. We see the judgment of God of that. But we also see the judgment of God in his cursing not just of Eve and Adam, but also in his cursing of the serpent. But in his judgment of the serpent, We see that third strand of that three-stranded cord. We see a foreshadowing of the mercy of God. God's curse on the serpent is found in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Verse 14 says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat, All the days of your life. And so he curses the serpent. But look at the remainder of his curse on the serpent in verse 15 of chapter 3. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity. The word enmity means I will put hostility or conflict. If you have have enmity between you, you and another person, you have hostility with them. They are your enemy. God says, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head, the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. 
So God promises that there will be hostility between the woman and the serpent, but not just between the woman and the serpent, but between her offspring and the offspring of the serpent. That word offspring literally means the seed from the serpent or the seed from the woman. And then God says that this seed of the woman, this one who would come from this woman, he will bruise or, or crush your head, serpent, and the one that comes from your seed will bruise or strike his heel, the one that comes from the seed of the woman. Bible scholars call this the proto-euangelion, the, the pre-gospel, the first hint of good news, that although there will be hostility between the serpent and the woman, between the, the offspring of the woman and the serpent, who is Satan, who's personified as Satan, Although there will be that hostility, which by the way is another illustration of judgment on man, that there will be hostility between mankind and Satan, that although there will be that hostility and that conflict, that the serpent's days are numbered because there is coming one from the seed of the woman who will crush his head. This is a clear reference to the crucifixion of Jesus where we see both of those things happening in the cross. The serpent strikes the Messiah, the seed of the woman, when he is nailed to the cross. And also the Messiah, the one who comes from the seed of the woman, crushes the head of the serpent when he, he, the Messiah, pays the price for sins and rises three days later, proving that the debt of sin has been paid. So we see this foreshadowing of God's mercy in this first book, that God is going to send his son to mercifully rescue his children. But in the process, his son will be stricken. His son will die. And so we see this three-stranded cord in this very first section in the book of creation. We see man's sin in the fall. We see God's judgment and the curses for that sin. And we see this this foreshadowing of this mercy of God in the midst of judgment that he has a, has a promise, the seed of promise, and this promise of the defeat of the serpent. What about the second book? The book of Adam, which is chapter 4 of Genesis, which includes Adam as a main character, but really the book of Adam is really the, the book about Adam's sons, Cain and then Abel and then Seth. Cain is the firstborn from Adam and Eve, and as the firstborn, Moses' readers, as they're reading Moses' book here, they would have immediately assumed that Cain would be the son of promise, that Cain would be the one through whom the promise of crushing the head of the serpent would happen. But we quickly see in the account of Cain and Abel in chapter 4 that Cain was not going to be the son of promise. Because God accepted his brother Abel's sacrifice and offering, and not Cain's. Cain's offering was not accepted by God because it wasn't of the first fruits of his offering. It was a leftover offering that Cain made. It wasn't of the best part of what he had. It was a a token offering that he made to God. While Abel's offering, on the other hand, was of the first fruits of his flock. It was of the fat portions or the best part 
to be a pleasing aroma to God. And so God accepted his brother Abel's offering, but God did not accept Cain's offering. The story of Cain and Abel was a story about the kind of worship that pleased God. That it wasn't about just making a token effort at worship and sacrifice and offering, but the kind of worship that pleases God is making a wholehearted and sacrificial offering to God out of our very best and our very first. But we learn from that story that, that Cain was a very bitter man, a very angry man, and as John talks about it in his epistle, his first epistle, he was also a very unrighteous man. And so clearly he was not the son of promise. Maybe Abel was the son of promise. But Abel could not have been the son of promise because he was killed by his brother before he had any offspring. And so there was not going to be any seed of promise that progressed through Abel. And so there's the first strand, man's sin. Cain was angry with his brother. And he was bitter because God accepted his brother's sacrifice, but he didn't accept and approve his own sacrifice. And God warned him about this. God, God warned Cain in chapter 4, verse 7. He said, listen, look out, Cain. Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you to destroy you, but you must rule over it. But we learn from the story that Cain did not rule over his sin. Instead, he gave in to his sin, and he murdered his brother. In verse 8, Moses explains that when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. So as a result of that, what happens? God curses Cain. So we see the second strand of this three-stranded cord. He curses Cain. He makes him a wanderer and a fugitive in the land. Listen to verses 10 through 12 of chapter 4. And the Lord God said to Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood. And so now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. Cain had been a farmer, but now God said, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer in the land. And so we see God's judgment. But then chapter 4 closes with the third strand, God's mercy. And we see that in the birth of the third son of Adam and Eve. And the third son was named Seth. So Cain was not the son of promise. Abel was not the son of promise. But Seth was. In chapter 5, which comes next, we, we have a list of genealogies there where Moses traces the lineage of Seth. And it ends at the end of that chapter with Noah. And then we pick up the genealogies in chapters 10 and 11, where Moses traces that line of Seth, the seed of the promise, through Noah all the way 10 more generations to Abraham, which is where we're going to begin and resume our study of Genesis next week in chapter 12. In the first few verses, we will encounter Abraham. But that's not the end of the story, because in Matthew's gospel, the first chapter, there's another genealogy that picks up the lineage of Abraham now and traces that line of Seth from Abraham 
some 55 generations later to Mary and Joseph's son, Jesus in a manger in Bethlehem. And so this second book of Genesis, the, the book of Adam, ends with this, this strand of God's mercy that we see in Seth, the son of promise. Then we move on to the third book in Genesis, the book of creation. We've got the book of creation, the book of Adam, and now the book of Noah. And again, by far, this is the largest section of the first 11 chapters. It begins all the way, technically it begins in chapter 5, as we have the genealogy that ends with Noah, and show, so it shows us where Noah comes from, and it goes all the way through the end of chapter 9, which includes, of course, the familiar story of Noah and the ark. And again, we see these three strands of God's redemptive plan in history all throughout the book of Noah as well. And all these three strands, man's sin, God's judgment, and God's mercy, are seen in a a summary form in four verses in chapter 6. Verse 5, 6, 7, and 8 of chapter 6. In verse 5, we see man's sin. This is what chapter 6, verse 5 says. The Lord God saw, he looked out on the people of that day, (coughs) the people of Noah's time, And he saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of man, of his heart, was only evil continually. So he looks out on man. He he sees the wickedness of man. He sees the sin of man. So we see that strand. And then the next two verses, we see the judgment of God. Verses 6 and 7. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Not in any way suggesting that that God changes or he changes mind about the creation of man. The language here in the Hebrew shows us that, that God is sorrowful for what has occurred with mankind, and so he is going to correct that. And so we learn through this that God is going to send a flood. We see God's judgment in the flood through which he is going to destroy mankind, through which he is going to destroy this creation in judgment of man's sin. But then in verse 8 of that passage, we see a foreshadowing of God's mercy. We see that third strand of God's redemptive plan. Verse 8 of chapter 6 says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God's mercy is shown to Noah and his family as he instructs him to build this ark through which God would save them from that judgment. The lesson of Noah is that God has made a way for mankind to be rescued out of judgment, to be delivered from judgment, and that means of rescue is through the ark. Noah's ark is made of wood, and it was built by faith, trusting God. It had never rained. And so Noah and his family trusted God, had faith in God, and they built this ark of wood. And by entering it, Noah and his family are spared from judgment and brought safely through on dry land. 
where we then see him build this altar where he worships Yahweh. He worships God. Our altar likewise, our our ark likewise is made of wood. It is the cross of Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life that we could never live and died in our place on on the cross to satisfy God's judgment for our sin. And by entering into our ark, which we can only do by faith, we are brought safely through the judgment to the other side where we build an altar of our life and live a life of worship to Yahweh, our God. So we see man's sin and then God's judgment because of that sin and then a hint and a foreshadowing of God's mercy in the midst of judgment, a three-stranded cord pointing directly to the Messiah, pointing directly to Calvary. And then finally, we see the fourth section of the first 11 chapters, the final book, which is the book of nations, or some call it the book of Noah's sons, the book of Noah's progeny, and the generations that followed after the flood. This is found in chapters 10 and 11. The bulk of this section is really just a list of genealogies. All of chapter 10 and the latter two-thirds of chapter 11 are genealogies. But through these list of genealogies, we trace the seed of promise through Abraham, through Noah, all the way to Abraham, whom we will begin to study about in chapter 12 next week. But it was Abraham to whom another promise would be given. Listen to verses 2 and 3 of chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, his name was Abram at that point, the Lord says to Abram, I will make you of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God gives Abraham a further promise beyond the promise of one who would come from the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And it is a promise of God creating or or choosing a people for himself. Selecting from among all the peoples of the earth a people for his own, a chosen nation, the nation of Israel. And so God says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and through you, all the nations, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. And I don't want to steal the thunder from next week's study of those opening verses of chapter 12, but suffice it to say that this was a in a sense, a restating of that promise of one who would come from the seed of the woman, who would crush the head of the serpent. This is how he would do it. This is the means he would use. He would choose a nation, and then through that nation, he would bring his son, through whom the redemptive plans of God that he has alluded to throughout all of the Old Testament would come to fruition. So most of this fourth book, the the book of Nations, is genealogies, but in the first nine verses of chapter 11, we, we find a story that closes out the first 11 chapters. And even in this story, we, saw, we find this three-stranded cord of God's redemptive plan. The story, of course, is the story of the Tower of Babel. The setting of the story is the plains of Shinar. And on the plains of Shinar gather all the peoples of the earth at that time. 
all the descendants of Noah after the flood. All those people are gathered together in one place, and they are, we find, filled with pride and arrogance. Isn't that astounding? Just a few generations after Noah, after deliverance through the flood, mankind again is filled with pride and arrogance. And we see mankind today mirrored in these people. Look at verse 4 of chapter 11. Listen to their pride. These people then said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So mankind wants to build, in a sense, heaven on earth. And so he builds the city of Babylon, which is what Babel is. Babel is Babylon, just a few centuries before the Babylonian Empire, which comes and and arises just a few centuries later. But this great city that they intend to build is the precursor of the city of Babylon. But not only do they want to build a city, they want to build a tower, and not just any tower, but a tower whose top is in the heavens. And why do they want to build a tower that reached up to the heavens? Well, they tell us, so that we might make a name for ourselves. It's just unabashed, unadulterated pride and arrogance that we see in these people. They want to make a name, not for their God, but for themselves. And they want to defy God. Remember what God said back in chapter 1 to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply and do what? Fill the earth. But not these people. They were not going to do that. They wanted to stay in one place. They want to stay with one language. They want to, and as long as they were there, they continued to grow in their pride and arrogance. And so they were living in direct defiance of Yahweh. So we see the first strand there. We see man's sin in their pride and arrogance and defiance of God's will. But then we see the second strand of God's redemptive plan. We see God's judgment resulting in their confusion and their dispersion among the lands. Look at verses 7 through 9 of chapter 11. The Lord has this conversation among the Trinity the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit gather together and they have, they have this conversation and Moses records this conversation in this passage. And, and, and God, as the Trinity says, come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off the building of the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And and what we find in chapter 10 in the table of nations is where they ended up. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 9 is what happened, but chapter 10 shows us where they went, who they were, and what lands they were dispersed to. But in this confusion and in this dispersion, which is an illustration, example of the judgment of God, we also see a foreshadowing of the mercy of God, that third strand. Because the dispersion of the people accomplished three things. Number one, it caused them to be obedient to God's command, to be fruitful and multiply and fill. Now you've got to fill the earth because I'm dispersing you there. But secondly, it served to slow their progression into further sin and debauchery. 
Again, the longer they were in one place, the longer they had one language, the longer they were united in their rebellion against God, the more prideful they became. And so this was an act of God's common grace to confuse their language and disperse them, thereby, in a sense, cutting them down to size and and combating their destructive pride. But thirdly and most importantly, this dispersion of the people sets the stage for the emergence of Abraham who comes out of Haran, one of those places where they were dispersed. God calls him out of Haran to a land to which he would show him. It sets the stage for the beginning of the nation of Israel, this chosen people through whom God would bring his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be the promised seed of the woman, who would crush the head of Satan, defeating sin and death for all those who would put their trust in him. And so these four books comprise the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the book of creation, the book of Adam and his sons, the book of Noah, and the book of nations. And in each of these books, we see this three-stranded cord woven all the way throughout revealing to us God's redemptive plan in history. The sin of man, the judgment of God, and the mercy of God. So now we back away from the content of this story and we return ourselves to the setting in which it was written. Moses, again, is writing this book as the nation of Israel is wandering in the desert. And this three-stranded cord of God's redemptive plan would have had a familiar ring to them. Consider what they had just experienced in their recent past, what had just happened to them. They had seen, they had come face to face with man's sin in Pharaoh, in Pharaoh's sin, his refusal to obey God and let the people go continuing to hold them in captivity and slavery in Egypt. But they also saw God's judgment as a result of man's sin and the plagues upon Egypt, resulting in the final plague as the firstborn of every Egyptian family was killed at the hands of the angel of death. But they also had seen and experienced God's mercy First, as they placed the blood of the lamb across their threshold and their doors so that when this angel of death saw the blood of the lamb, he passed over the homes of the Israelites and moved on to the next Egyptian home. But God's mercy was also experienced by these Israelites as God rescued them through the Red Sea, as he parted the waters of the Red Sea and allowed the Israelites to walk over onto dry land. And church, this theme of God's redemptive plan in history, this three-stranded cord of man's sin and God's judgment and God's mercy is going to be repeated over and over and over again as we make our way through the remainder of this book. Beginning next week, 
We will see it in the life of Abraham and Sarah. We will see it in Abraham's sons, Isaac and Ishmael. We will see it in Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau. And we'll see it in Jacob's sons, all of them, but most particularly in his son Joseph and his life. And as Moses weaves this three-stranded cord of God's redemptive plan all throughout this book, and and, and in fact, as God weaves this three-stranded cord of his redemptive plan all throughout the Old Testament, it all points to Jesus. It all points to the cross. Man is sinful and deserving of God's judgment, but God is merciful, merciful, and he has made a way for man to be rescued from that judgment. And that means of, of rescue is through the perfect life of his son Jesus and through his substitutionary death on the cross in our place. Because in the cross, we see the reality of our sin. And in the cross, we see the reality of God's judgment for our sin as Jesus satisfies God's judgment in his death. But in the cross, we also see his mercy and allowing his son to die in our place so that by faith in Christ alone, we might be rescued and redeemed. So church, as we encounter this three-stranded cord, as we see these themes coming out of chapters 1 through 11 and continuing through the rest of this chapter, we should first of all realize the depravity of our own souls. And, and, And we should recognize and admit our own shortcomings and sin and rebellion against God. We should recognize and admit that we deserve God's judgment as a result of that, and because of that, beg for God's mercy through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and and you have never begged for God's mercy. Maybe you're trying, maybe you recognize your sin, maybe you recognize you deserve God's judgment, and in response to that, you're trying to live a life good enough to make up for that sin so that you would make the grade. And maybe this morning, you simply need to place your trust in Christ, perhaps for the first time, to be rescued from the penalty of sin that you and all of us deserve. And we want to provide a time in just a moment for you to do that. But if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ this morning, then as we, as we trace that, that woven three-stranded cord all throughout this book and all throughout the Old Testament, pointing to the cross of Jesus Christ, pointing to his crucifixion and resurrection for, for us, may we be reminded how he saved us, what we deserve And what a glorious and gracious and merciful God he is. Let's pray.